0: Hmm. Amen, amen. I love, love, love the song that we just sang. You ever just need to, you need to remain standing, you know? Do you ever feel like you've had one of those days where you just, you you cry out to God, I don't know if I can keep standing, God, and he picks you up and he holds your arms out. And then you hear a song like that, and that, uh, you know that, that's one from the last, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years that really resonated with my heart. And you know, it's not a new song, but it's one I needed to hear tonight. I don't know about you. Well, we all need to remain standing, I don't mean physically, but spiritually, and we've been talking about the basics. We started last week, a new series uh, discussing, you know, some fundamentals, some essential practices, habits that, that are really, really vital to the Christian life. And we we see that this all relates to the journey of discipleship. And last week we talked about what a disciple is. You know, anybody can be a disciple. In fact, almost everybody is a disciple. Uh, you're either a disciple of yourself or you're a disciple of uh, a political figure. Some people are disciples of cult figures, cult leaders. Some are disciples of, of gurus in, in different areas, finance and fitness and, and, and what have you. But in our context, when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about someone who follows Jesus. That's what a disciple is. How do you do that? How do you follow Jesus, practically speaking? You know, you are a Christian by faith, Okay, you come by grace through faith. And so everything in the Christian life is tied to faith. And so it is by faith that you and I are depending on Him to supply grace for our eternity. But we are also in this life, before we get to that, we are submitting to Him to produce works in our present. Right? So, what's the opposite of grace? It's works. And so we have grace for eternity, uh, but, but what he wants for us is to produce works in us, in our present. And so we, we need to submit to him in order to do good works for him. And that is germane to discipleship. But you can't submit to somebody you don't know very well. And you can't work for somebody when you don't have instruction. You haven't received instruction. How many of you work for a living? How many of you work somewhere where you just show up and they hand you a paycheck and you go home? You do? Okay, I want to know where you work because I'm going to put in an app right now. Well, nobody would expect you to work unless uh, you understood what your job description was. Where do you go that you might know the person to whom you are submitting and that you might receive instructions? Well, we go to the Word of God. We need the one to whom we are submitting to speak. And the primary way that he speaks is through this wonderful thing called the Bible. And so we want to talk about what it means to experience the Bible. Last week we talked about uh, the question, how do I spend time with Christ? And we talked about how part of spending time with Christ is to spend time in His Word. And uh, so that that is fundamental to discipleship, being in the Word of God. Now the sad truth is that many, many Christians in this world, the only time that they spend in the Bible is on Sunday morning. At a church service. And for some people, it's on Wednesday night, all right? And so uh, that would be sad, would it not, for the only time that you hear from the Lord and His Word to be in a church service? No, His desire for you is that you spend time in His Word on your own, where you don't rely on an external source for your spiritual sustenance. You've heard the phrase or the the saying, uh, give a man a fish and he won't go hungry for a day, but you teach a man to fish, and he will never go hungry. Well, that's what we want to be able to do is to to train people to experience the Bible, to grow through the Bible, to partake of the Bible, to apply what the Bible says in their daily life on their own. Uh, Not to be spoon-fed by somebody else, Okay, but to learn how to feed yourself. Now, we all have benefited from people. I certainly have uh, good Bible teachers that I've sat under that I've learned from. I certainly hope that there are people that learn from me, and I I think that's a good thing. But every Christian, every believer ought to be able to feed themselves. How do you do that? Last week, I showed you kind of an an easy, accessible in to spending time with Christ, and it was called the One Thing Study, and we talked about that acronym O-N-E. O is observe, that means you read the text, you read the passage. N is note the one thing that stands out from that passage that resonates with your heart. And E, of course, is express that. Uh, Pray that back to God. Express it through your life via some sort of a transformative change that is to take place, some kind of application. Some of you may have tried the one thing study this past week. Maybe you enjoyed that. Maybe you thought, well, this is easy, I can do this. And then some of you may have thought, well, you know what, this isn't bad, but I'd like to go deeper. Is there a deeper way for me to experience the Bible? Well, that's what I want to talk about tonight. There are three primary, very common approaches to studying the Bible, and uh, they are evidenced often by when you come and you sit and you listen to a speaker. You listen to somebody who is attempting to impart truth, uh, teach, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's someone at an event, a a motivational speaker, a, a Christian speaker, and you can always tell the kind of method that they have employed in order to produce what they are delivering. And in your notes, the first method is called the deductive method. The deductive method okay and what this is basically this is you coming to scripture and you're starting with a premise you've already got something in mind you've got an idea about what the scripture is saying or or about what you want it to say and uh it's a preconceived notion you understand and as you approach the scripture you're looking for support you know what you want it to say you know what you want to say you're just looking for some backup you're looking for some support And uh, it's kind of like Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you ever read any Sherlock Holmes, but he always said, I deduce. Okay? He's a deductive reasoner. What that means is that uh, a mystery has presented itself, and he has formed a deduction. He has formed a hypothesis, a theory, if you will. And as he walks through that crime scene, he's looking for things that can support his theory. Well, that makes for good crime fiction. It does not make for good Bible study. And you can already tell what's wrong with this approach. You don't want to come to the scripture with a preconceived idea. You want it to fall out of scripture. Uh, secondly, there's what we call, the, what I call the springboard method. The springboard method, okay? Sometimes uh, what this is, basically, is that you're using scripture as a starting point, but then you're just really sharing your opinion. And a lot of speakers, some very, very popular speakers. I dare say people a lot of you follow regularly, perhaps podcasts and such. You'll hear guys do this. Maybe you've seen it in person. They'll start. They'll open the Bible. They'll read a verse. They might read two verses, maybe a whole passage, and then they'll set it aside, and then they'll come out here, and they'll just talk about whatever they wanted to talk about in the first place. It's just, you see, it's a springboard. It's a launch pad to get the conversation going. And what's the problem with that? Well, that's not really a Bible study method at all. There's no Bible study going on there. That's just them using a, a segue to speak their mind. Well, the, the final thing I want to mention here in this first section is called the inductive method. The inductive method of Bible study. This is really, I believe, the most effective, the most, the most tried and true method of discerning the word of God, the inductive method. What you're doing is you're just pulling out the facts, you're not coming with an agenda. You're not coming with preconceived notions or anything like that. Uh, you come without any set mind uh, mindset, any, any idea about what you're reading, and you're deriving it from this passage, unless, of course, you're coming with, with a preconceived idea based on another passage in Scripture. And that's okay, see. If I'm going to read the Gospel, or excuse me, if I'm going to read, say, the book of James... And I read James, and I see what James says, you know, about faith without works is dead. And I have just schooled myself, as we all did together on Sundays in the book of Ephesians, and I see that for by grace you're saved through faith not of works. I'm coming with that preconceived idea that that we're not saved by works. And so when I come to James, I've already got a mindset there, and that leads me to a correct interpretation because Scripture interprets Scripture, you see. And so, but other than that, you don't want to come to Scripture with any idea outside of the Bible uh, based on experience or, or some soundbite or anything like that. It's just you and the Word of God, and you're pulling out the facts. And I love this method. I think it's the most wonderful, most effective method. And one of the things I like about it is it's all based on asking questions. How many of you, when you read the Bible, you have a lot of questions? Okay, we've done some Q&As here. I've gotten a lot of questions from you guys. How many of you have been overwhelmed by your own questions? Sometimes you get frustrated. You're reading the Bible and you're like, you just question after question after question. You're like, and some people give up. They're just, I I give up. I can't can't understand that. What hope do I have? I, I just have, I have too many questions. What if I told you God made you that way? What if I told you that God designed you to ask questions what if i told you that the very fact that you have a lot of questions that that ultimately is designed to work in your favor as you read understand interpret and apply scripture god designs questions for just such a purpose it's his way for you to study the bible so we're going to look at the inductive method tonight would you would you bow with me Heavenly Father, I just ask your blessing upon the rest of our study tonight. May it be fruitful and eventful and uh, practical. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there are three basic kinds of questions uh, in inductive Bible study. They fall into three categories. And the first one in your notes is called observation. Observation. And basically what you're asking when you ask an observation question is you're asking what does the text say? What does it say? The answer to any observation question is gonna be found right there in the text, okay? It's right in front of you. All you need to do is read. You just gotta read, and you've got to observe the passage, and that may mean that you read it twice. That may mean that you read it three times, however many times it takes for you to really observe, but that's the point. You're observing the text, and as you read it, Multiple times you might have a notepad with you and you might jot down some of these questions that you have, Uh, observational questions, and you don't have to answer them right away. You can just put them there and then you can come back to them later. But the answers to observation questions are always found in the text. Uh, You got to be a good observer. Observation is key to learning. Is that true? In any discipline, that is true. I think of doctors. How many of you would love it if you went to the doctor's office and he never looked at you? He just stood there, writing on his pad, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, and you're talking, and he's not looking at you at all, and he fires off a prescription and walks out the door, and says, see you in two weeks. That wouldn't set your mind at ease at all. You would want him to take your temperature. You'd want him to get that stethoscope out. You'd want him to you know, take your pulse and, and do whatever he needs to do to, to make a good observation. Otherwise, how trustworthy can he be? I heard a story about a med school. There was a professor with a classroom full of wannabe doctors, and he was trying to teach them about observation. And he brought an empty jar into class, and he unscrewed the lid, and he said, Class, I want you to observe me very, very carefully, and I want you to do exactly as I do. And he put his finger in that jar, and then he tasted his finger. He passed that jar around the room, and it went to every desk, and every single, every single student took that jar, put their finger in it, and tasted their finger. Got around to the front. Professor took the jar, quickly put the lid back on. He said, you have all failed. You did not do as I asked. There are dangerous, dangerous bacteria in this jar, and they all gasped. Now, there wasn't any bacteria in the jar. He was trying to teach them a lesson. They said, "Well, wait wait a minute, we did exactly what you said. You put your finger in there and you tasted your finger. He said, I told you to observe me carefully. And if you had observed me carefully, you would see that I put this finger in the jar, but I tasted this finger right here. And the lesson is observation matters. And in the medical world, that can mean the difference between life and death. And in Bible study, it can mean the difference between a right interpretation and a wrong interpretation. So we have to observe carefully. And as we observe, we're asking questions. And these questions are along the lines of who, what, when, where, and how. Okay, and it's gonna drive you to the text. The next category of questions is called interpretation questions, interpretation questions. that is really the point here, is we've got to know what the text means. And that's what an interpretation question is really asking. It's asking, what does the text mean? We, we've already discerned, we've observed, we know what it says. Now we want to know, what does it mean? And there are a few guidelines as we do this. First of all, I would start with a literal reading of the Scripture. You want to take it at face value. You always start with the literal Now, does that mean that the Bible is always literal? Does that mean that there's never any figurative language in Scripture? No, there's a lot of figurative language. You read some of the books of poetry and such, you're going to see some of that. But as a rule, you're going to start with the expectation that the Bible says what it means. And you're going to take it at face value. And you know what? When you encounter figurative language, when you encounter symbolism, you've got this wonderful thing called a brain... And your brain is a gift from God whereby you recognize symbolism and you can discern it from what is meant to be literal. If I come in and I say, man, it's raining cats and dogs out there, uh, you don't immediately assume assume that I mean to say that uh, Fluffy and Fido are just hitting the ground like wet sacks of potatoes, okay? You understand metaphor and simile and all of these devices, uh, but you start with the literal interpretation, and I would add to that, I'd say that you should fight the temptation to rationalize Scripture as you read it, okay? Don't, don't, don't fall into the trap of interpreting Scripture uh, along the lines of modern sensibilities. Sometimes we do, Sometimes our Bible translations do that for us which is why picking the right translation can, can be an important thing. But we want to read it, and we want to understand it in its cultural context. And so we don't want to just read it through the lens of our own experience, of our own predilections here. And I would say that, that, that that's important. So you got to study in context. Context is king. Uh, if you don't have context, you're not going to get it right. I could give you all kinds of things out of context that the Bible actually does say. For instance, I could say that, you know, the Bible says there is no God. Does the Bible say that? Is that phrase in the Bible, there is no God? Yes, it's, it's prefaced by the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What do you need? You need context. So context, very, very important. And so you look at that, and when you read it in context and you still struggle with it, you're going to go outside of that passage to another passage to shed light on this so you're going to look before and after the passage that you've read to get the context okay and you're going to let scripture interpret itself it's been said that the bible is its own best commentary how about that you know a lot of us we rely on our study bible and we we immediate we've given up we don't even try to to interpret the scripture anymore we just read a verse and we're like yeah i don't know what that means and you go down to your your study notes and you read there. And I love study notes. I got a lot of study Bibles. I've read a lot of study notes. But you know what? They're a tool, and they're there to, to assist you. They're not your, your go-to. They're not inspired either. And so we need to develop these habits on interpreting Scripture. And uh, there's a number of things, but I w- the only other thing I'd add in this section is whatever interpretation you arrive at, don't be dogmatic unless the Scriptures are dogmatic. Does that make sense? So, if you have an interpretation of something and it's not crystal clear, let's say, then don't hold on to that and treat everybody that disagrees with you as a heretic. How about that? I think we could avoid a lot of problems in the church if we did that. But that's interpretation. And then finally, there's application application. So, what we're asking here is how should I respond? How should I respond? Uh, you know, Because what's the goal if you want to become a disciple? You want to be more like Jesus, which means you've got to be less like you, naturally. And so as you study the Bible, we're hoping that that's a transformative thing. It's going to make a change in you. And so you're asking, is there an application? Now, the truth is, I should point this out, there may not be an application in every single passage that you're reading. Some people, they force an application. Every time they open the word of God, they're like, this means that I need to do X, Y, and Z. Well, there may not be An application in what you're reading. Sometimes God is speaking very specifically to to Israel or to a a, a specific individual in Scripture. He might be talking to David. He might be talking to to Daniel. He might be talking to uh, uh, any number of people. We, We don't need to try to apply everything that they if you if you read Judges and try to act like some of the people in there, you're gonna mess your life up samson was not always a great role model okay so we don't always find an application unless it's what not to do perhaps okay but how do you do it then if we're looking for application i got a phrase i want to share with you it's this in your notes put on the specs put on the specs like glasses okay s-p-e-c-s and that's an acronym uh, as pastors are prone to love. And so it goes like this. You take that letter S, ask, you're asking, is there a sin to forsake? Is there a lesson here that I should guard against this activity? P, is there a promise to claim? Right? Is there, we, we need to know the promises of God when we come across them in Scripture. We ask, is this for me? Is that a promise I should claim? Uh, e, is there an example to follow? Am I observing a character whose actions I should seek to emulate? Uh, C, is there a command to obey? Uh, is it straightforward? Is this an instruction for me? And then another S, is there a, is there a stumbling block to avoid? Is there something that is, is needless in my life that I should just sidestep, uh, not present as a, a temptation to others? And so those are just some great rules of thumb. Those are the three different areas of questions as we study the Word of God, Okay? And as you read in scripture, you might find it helpful to be mindful of what kind of literature that you're reading. Uh, is Is the Bible the same? Does it read the same all the way through? No, it doesn't, does it? When you go through a library, if you were to just randomly take books off the shelf and you ended up with a stack of, say, oh, 66 of them, and you get them home and you're looking through these books, are they all likely to be the same kind of book? No, you're going to have novels, you're going to have history, you're going to have poetry, you're going to have, uh, you know, uh, scientific manuals, let's say, all kinds of stuff. And you don't read all those the same, necessarily. And so in the Bible, the Bible is, yes, one book, because it's got one author, but it's also 66 individual books, because God selected human authors, and he worked in conjunction with their unique personalities with their skill sets with their writing style with their voice and they transcribed his thoughts through those filters and you have this inspired inerrant word and some of it takes different forms so let me just give you the five literature types that we find in scripture that you will encounter Uh, and the first one is called a historical narrative historical narrative and the description of that is this is in story form. It's written in a story form. Now, it's a true story, hence historical, okay? And so what you're looking for is you're looking for real people, real places, real events, and real emotions. And these are, these are fairly easy to understand. They're pretty straightforward. They're pretty linear for the most part. And so what are examples of that? Well, you got the Gospels. That's historical narrative. You've got the book of Acts. That's a historical narrative. In the Old Testament, you've got Genesis. You've got Exodus, right? These read like you would read a history book. They're giving an account. And so to understand that, you've got to identify with the people that are in that story. And so God gave us all an imagination. And so that is not to go to waste. And he wants you to employ that. And I think that when you're reading a narrative, you're not just getting uh, static facts, okay? Okay? As you go, you're, you're, you're identifying with some of these characters in the narrative. And, uh, you know, we've already talked about it. you're asking observation questions. Who's, who's in this story? So you're, you're thinking about who is in this story, okay? When I think of uh, Mark 6, Jesus and the disciples, they're in the boat. You know what would be helpful when I read that story? Uh, I'm reading that story, and I'm imagining what that was like. They're in a boat, and so I'm picturing the Sea of Galilee. I'm I'm, I'm I'm imagining the sounds of the sea on that on that boat. You know, maybe, maybe I, I want to go and do a little historical research, see what a first century fishing vessel would look like, you know. I want to hear those sounds, I want to smell those smells. You know, what's happening? As you consider the context, where have they just come from? Has Jesus just performed a miracle? Are they a are they buzz about that? Are they talking about that? Is that lending to the moment here? You see, when you identify with the characters, makes it come alive for you, makes it real to you. And so you think about all of that because stories have power and God is a master storyteller and so the scriptures are loaded with stories. The second kind of literature that we see are, are epistles. Epistles. This is in letter form. That's, that's what kind of literature this is. It's a letter. I, I heard a story about a, a children's Sunday school class, and the teacher was introducing the concept of epistles, and she asked the class, can anybody tell me what an epistle is? And a little boy shot him up, up his arm, and he said, it's the wife of an apostle. You know. Good guess, Johnny. Uh, but no, it's, it's a letter. And so we, we're, we studied Ephesians. That is an epistle of... Paul the Apostle. And so, what you're looking for, you're looking for some ideas as you read this. You're looking for repeated words, for verbs, for for subjects and objects, and the ways that these passages are arranged. But letters, epistles are very instructional forms of writing. Lots of exhortations. Paul often dealt with issues that, that the early church dealt with, and we don't deal with any of those issues anymore, of course. And so, uh, of course, we do. So it's, it's helpful to read that. So examples would be Romans, Galatians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and Ephesians, of course, Philippians, all the letters of Paul, 1st, 2nd Peter, all right? 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, okay? Uh, but very, very important literature form. The third literature type in Scripture, this might sound familiar. We're studying these on Sunday morning, parables, parables. And the description, as, as you may already know from our time together, is that these are stories with hidden meanings. It's a story with a hidden meaning. And so what you're looking for, it's not like other literature types, and what you're looking for is you're looking for a story within the story. Because we know what, what the point of a parable was. Uh, Christ is, is using stories with everyday examples to reveal truth, to those who are seeking him, but he's also, he's got another purpose. He's trying to obscure truth from those who have rejected him, who are not seeking him. And so it's not, it's not obvious. There are symbols to interpret. And so you're not going to interpret a parable based on your personal experience. You've got to look at context. Often Christ will explain the parable. Not always, as we'll see this weekend. I'm going to look at two more with you on Sunday. And we'll, we'll draw an interpretation. From that, okay, and then number four, you've got the literature type of poetry. Poetry, and this is Hebrew poetry, which is highly figurative. Lots of symbols in poetry, and so you're you're watching for patterns, ideas arranged in patterns, and yes, symbols and analogies will be abundant that are there to express these ideas, and uh, lots of of picture picture language. But uh, poetry in Scripture has tremendous insights. So uh, what are we talking about? We're talking about the book of Psalms. talking about Song of Solomon. We're talking about Ecclesiastes, okay? Proverbs. You've got some wisdom literature that takes a poetic form. All right, and then the final uh, literature type that you encounter, we just did an eight-week study on prophecy. And so there's loads of prophecy, as you know. As I've told you, 40% of your Bible is predictive prophecy. And so you've got a large swath of that. And I would say that this is a literature type that has both figurative and literal language in it. You're going to start with the literal, as with all Scripture. But you're going to have a healthy dose of both literal and figurative language in there. So you're looking for the plain language infused with symbolism and analogies. And it can be intimidating, but generally, and I would say this is true, that most prophetic passages are easier than you might assume to interpret, and uh, you know, God most of the time is speaking through a prophet, a human prophet to Israel in the Old Testament, that's certainly true, lots of information uh, to be derived in context, and that's always very, very important, but a lot of it will deal with the end times or future events, some of it will deal with things that have come to pass uh, prior to our time here. But in the Old Testament, you've got what's called the major and the minor prophets. You're familiar with those terms, major and minor prophets? Major prophets would be uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, people like that. You've got the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Some of you are singing that song in your head from Sunday school when you memorize the books of the Bible. You want to know why they're divided into major and minor you don't have one group that's the varsity squad and the other guys are riding the bench. That's not what that means. It's just about the size of the book. Isaiah is a massive book, okay? Uh, Habakkuk is not. And so that's the only difference between them. They have equal authority. And then you've got some prophetic stuff in the New Testament, right? What's, what's, our, what's our one prophetic book in the New Testament? Revelation. That's the only totally prophetic book book in the New Testament, although you've got some very, very important prophetic passages. And that's true. These literature types are not complete books. You'll have a you'll have an historic narrative, and then in the middle of it, like the gospel, in the middle of it, Jesus will break into a parable. Also within that historic narrative, as in Matthew 24-25, you're gonna have some pretty heavy prophecy going on. In an epistle, like 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, a lot of that letter deals with prophecy. And so you have to uh, remember that. So what I want to do right now with the time that we've got left is I want to take one of these literature types. I'm going to take an historic narrative. And I want to walk through it and I want to show you how you can do an inductive Bible study on your own and how to write questions... And you don't need any study notes, and you don't need any external material, and you don't need Pastor Scott, okay? You can do this, and that's what I want to show you. Now, I I hope once you've mastered this, you'll still join us on Wednesday nights, okay? But the goal is we want to teach you how to fish, okay? And so we're going to look at Mark 2, 1 through 12, And I'm just going to read this through. Now, you will have, if you're really going to do this for real, you're going to read this several times. We're just going to read it once, okay? And then we'll revisit portions of it. But Mark 2, verse 1, and he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported he was at home. And if you've done the context before and after, you'll know we're talking about Jesus here, okay? And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that uh, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose And immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And that is the passage, all right? So that's what we're going to work with. All right, so the first thing we're going to do, having read it once, twice, Three, however many times you feel is necessary, and maybe along the way, you're gonna start to write some questions. And you're gonna start with some observation questions. Now, I have taken the liberty to write some out, so I'm gonna give you some examples of the types of questions that would fit in this category. So the first observation question that I wrote is, who are the people mentioned in this story? That's an observation question, because you can just read it and get the answer. You got me? And so who are some of the people? Okay, we got Jesus. Who else? Who? You got the paralytic. You've got the paralytic's friends. That's good. How about the, the crowd? That's kind of a general group, uh, the mob, the crowd there. You've got who else? Who, who did the belly aching? The scribes, Pharisees, all right. Okay, so you've got some groups here to, to start with, right? Now, God is mentioned in there, I think. Uh, God is mentioned by the, by the scribes, so you could, you could list God as well. God is ever-present, so you could list him. Uh, but five groups for certain. Now, some people might throw in there, just out of habit, they might say the disciples. Okay? Because Jesus was always accompanied by his disciples. Now, were they there? Probably, but they're not listed. And so I would refrain, I would resist the temptation to make assumptions. It's a good habit to work with what the text says, Okay? Unless it's corroborated by another gospel, we're going to work with what the text says to be accurate. And then the second question I wrote is this. In the story, where is Jesus? Where is he? He's in a house. Where? In Capernaum. Okay. And if you know anything about Capernaum, that was, that was where Jesus went home to. It's kind of the hometown. If you go to Israel and you visit Capernaum, as I have, there's a sign there that says, Jesus' hometown. And because that's where he would go. And Peter lived there as well. So he's in a house in Capernaum. Now, the third observation question, and this is just a good general observation question with any passage, any narrative, okay? What happens in the story? And what I would do is with that question, uh, I, I, I would recommend you got a notepad as you're writing these down, and you can just answer that question having read this several times. You can kind of re-articulate the basic events of this story, okay? You just relate it in your own words, and I don't need to do that. You can, you can see in the text what happens there, but that's what you would do right there, okay? Uh, but it says, notice in verse 3, And they came. Uh, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Uh, so when when I asked you who was present in the story and you said the friends, some of you might have been thinking the four guys. But this seems to imply there was more than just the four guys. It says they. Now, who is they? Uh, I believe this is a small group that comes with four men. It says they came. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So I the the... It seems to imply there's a group, I don't know how many, but there's a group, and among them are four guys carrying this paralytic, and we know he's on a bed, so you're picturing maybe one on each corner, okay? But you're observing, that's the whole point here, all right? You're making observations, and that's very, very important here, okay? So now that we've got the facts of the story, we can begin to do what? We're going to interpret it now. That's right. We're going to start with our interpretation. What does this mean? Here's an interpretation question I came up with. What are some of the physical problems of the paralytic? Okay, that is not, you know, overtly revealed in this text. And so you're kind of discerning some things. What would be some of the problems? Well, he can't walk. (laughs) We know that. He can't walk. If you can't walk, what's the effect of that? Can you you go and purchase food for yourself? Can't do that. Can you feed yourself? Can you get up and go to the table and feed yourself? No. Can you bathe yourself? No. Uh, So you can't really care for yourself in normative ways that people would care for themselves. So this man is reliant upon the assistance of other people to look after him. All right? And then the next question, how difficult would it be then for him to get to Jesus? This parallel, Well, it would be impossible, and it's impossible for a couple of reasons that we can derive from the text. Number one, his paralysis; he can't get there on his own. He needs help. But even though they help him, can he get to see Jesus? He cannot. Why? Because it's crowded. It's so crowded. He can't. It's not just that he can't get in the door. He can't get near the door. You see. So we're we're, we're drawing an interpretation here, and then I ask this question about the four men. What kind of men were these four? What can we we understand? How do we interpret what kind of people they are? Now, I don't know about the small group that came, the larger group, but these four guys, well, they're obviously men of faith. They're men of faith. They believe. And so a man of faith, a person of faith, is gonna go to great lengths uh, to, to, to do what needs to be done. And we also know, how do they feel about their friend? They love him. They care about him. They're caring men. They carry him bed and all to go see. And who knows how far they went, uh, but they care about him. And we see also, I would add, they are persistent. Are they, did they give up quick when they saw? Man, we can't get near that door. Chuck, I'm sorry, son. You're going to put you down right here. Have a great day. No, they didn't give up. They, they went up on the roof, didn't they? And then based on their actions on the roof, we see that they were creative they concocted a plan. They devised a way to lower their friend through the roof. You might add they're destructive. I didn't put that in there, but you could. And this, but they've got to they've think it through. They've got to cut a hole. It's got to be big enough for this man bed and all to be lowered down. And then I'm thinking they've got to put some ropes around this bed to I mean, they're not just leaning down there, I would assume. And so there is some thinking going on. And they're, they're hard workers, apparently. I would imagine it wasn't easy to cut a hole in a roof. You know, I don't think that it was a matter of removing some palm branches. I mean, they're standing on the roof, so it's gotta be sturdy. And so they gotta cut through that thing, so it, it's work. Now, here's a, here's a related question. Why were they so persistent? Why were they so persistent? They believed that Jesus could heal their friend. They believed it. Faith brings about persistence that might be a little nugget that you would learn at this point okay uh now picture this here's where you're starting to identify with the people in the scene i want you to picture the inside of that house you're starting to imagine what it was like is it hot in there probably It's, it's body to body to body right it's cram packed people are out the door is it noisy in there yes maybe except when jesus is talking So you got the Savior, he's teaching. Everybody's crammed in there like sardines. It's probably stifling hot, but you're listening. Everybody's focused on Christ, and then all of a sudden, (laughs) what what in the thunder is going on? Dust starts coming down, and then something breaks through, and sunlight comes in the room. Maybe debris falls on one of the, the scribes. You know, and you're picturing this, scene and then here comes this bed lowering down from the roof. I can imagine Jesus counting this. Is he surprised by this? No, he's not surprised by this. You know, by the way, this should be a lesson to any pastor. When a cell phone goes off, when a baby starts crying in the service and we tend to get flustered, Jesus put up with a guy coming out of the ceiling, okay? And so I need to learn from that. That's my, that's my application right there for me. Now, Jesus says something as he observes them, right? Whose faith, this is my question, whose faith was Jesus talking about in verse 5? What does verse 5 say? It says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Whose faith? Their faith. Their faith. He sees their faith, and he says to the paralytic, all right? Now, they were men of faith. What did they have faith in? That Jesus could heal their friend. Is that what Jesus just did? No. He he said, your sins are forgiven. Is that what they had in mind? That's not the healing that they had in mind. They wanted him to be able to walk again. And so that's that's what they were looking for all that time. Uh, now, uh, this leads to the next question. Why did Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven? If, if the men were looking for the guy to be healed, and that's what their faith was all about, why does he say, son, your sins are forgiven? What, what is this guy's greatest need? Is, is, what's, what's your greatest need? Is it spiritual or physical? It's spiritual. It, what's your greatest need? Your physical malady that you're dealing with or forgiveness of your sins? That's right. So Jesus knows that this man's greatest need is to be forgiven. His greatest need is not to be healed. So our spiritual need is more important than our physical need. That's actually a little takeaway that you can discern right there. And you might write that down in your journal, okay? Uh, Now, some people might say that the man's sins were forgiven by Christ first because, and this is the theory, that the paralysis was the result of personal sin. Some people say that. Some people teach that, okay? Maybe he did something wrong. This is why he's paralyzed. That's why his sins had to be forgiven first. Now, I would say it's dangerous to interpret it that way because the text does not say that. So I would not jump to that conclusion. Um, Other passages might give us some insights, okay? I want you to look at John 9. John 9, verse 1 through 3, so you got this guy, Jesus, uh, as he went along, he saw a man born blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Why are they asking that? Well, there's the con- there must be a concept that they have of, of like a generational curse, right? And you see this a lot in deliverance ministry, that, you know, this person is is this way, this is their condition, because you know, great-great-grandpa Joe committed thus and such, and so they're dealing with that familially, and it's a generational thing. And so you know, they're asking this question, and Jesus' response is, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so what we know from that right there is that not all sin is the result of a personal or generational sin, Okay? Not all sin. Now, unless you're talking about Adam, okay? When sin entered the world through Adam, what happened? All flesh was corrupted. You and I were fallen. No more were, were, would we be perfect. Adam would not be perfect. Adam would die. Adam's body would wear out. He would get sick. He would get tired. And so whenever you, you, you know, have, have that pain in your back, you, you can point to that moment in the garden when sin occurred. And so in a, in a general sense, All physical limitation and illness and condition is a result of sin in a general sense. What we're not seeing is a strong argument that one could make that every single issue that we have physically, uh, medically, can be traced to sin that is personal or generational. All right? That's a rabbit trail. I don't suggest you chase those at every time you open the word of God, okay? But the next question I've got here is, what are the scribes questioning about his statement? When he says, son, your sins are forgiven, what are the scribes questioning? He says, you know, verse seven, it, it says, why they're saying, why does this man, they're not saying it out loud, by the way, but why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? So what they're questioning is, His authority. His authority. Now, let me ask you, were they correct that only God can forgive sin? Yes, they were. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what is Jesus claiming? He's claiming that he is God. That's right. And we know that shortly after this, the scribes and Pharisees will soon begin to plan Uh, the killing of Christ because of blasphemy that he claimed to be God. And so it was a very difficult thing for them to understand why he could claim such a thing. So my next question is, when did Jesus begin to answer their questions? And what does that reveal? So if you look at verse 8, it says, And immediately, well, there's your answer. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? It happened right away. Now, are they talking out loud? They are not. They are thinking inwardly. It says so in the text. It's in their hearts. It's in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. He can see into their hearts. Who can see into the hearts of men? God. So again... What is testified to by Christ knowing what they're thinking? He's God. He is deity. And he answers them even before they speak aloud. He's establishing himself as God by reading and revealing their thoughts to them. Why are you doing this? And he tells them. Now, can you imagine having your thoughts called out in front of a room full of people? You probably just, you know, what? What? You're, you're crazy. I know, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that. Who does this guy think he is? You know, and then he asks a second question. Look at verse nine. He, he says to them, and I love this. This is where it gets good. Oh, it's getting good. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Okay, so here's my question. Which statement in verse nine is easier to say? Which statement is easier to say? I want you to really think about that. Think about that now. Uh, now, the question is not which is easier to do. Okay? It's not, that's not what we're asking here. Which is easier to say, not do? Uh, Christ, it, these are both easy for Jesus to do. Right? Um, he's already said your sins are forgiven. So did the scribes believe him when he said that? No, because they didn't think he had the authority to do that. And so if I say to you, if I tell you, your sins are forgiven, okay? How will you know if you're actually forgiven? Can you know that? If, if I'm the one bestowing that fact on you, your sins are forgiven. Can you know that by me saying that, that your sins are in fact forgiven? No, you can't know that. Why? Because that's not a visual thing. That cannot be confirmed. Visually, nobody can know if what I've said is true. When I say that, but if I say rise and walk, right, then very soon you will know whether or not that statement is true. Okay? So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You see, if I say rise and walk and they don't rise and walk, you're going to know I'm a liar. Right, And so Jesus asked them this. And then he follows this up by saying, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. I would make a note of that right there. But that you may know. Whenever Jesus says, but that you may know, we better take note. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. In other words, Jesus is saying to the whole room, but mainly these Pharisees, I'm gonna prove to you that I have authority to forgive sin because I'm gonna demonstrate in a visual way the kind of power and authority that I have. And now, when this guy gets up, nobody's gonna be able to question Jesus' authority because this man will will, will do exactly what he's commanded to do. All right, so here's, here's an important question. And this is gonna be an important question no matter what passage you're looking at. What is the point of this text? What is the point of this text? You, you, you wanna know the theme. You wanna know the point. And the issue here that seems to present itself repeatedly uh, is the issue of Jesus' authority, namely his authority to forgive sin, which speaks to his divinity, you see. And every time you study, you've got you to figure out what the point of the text is. All right, So that's, that's what we are discerning is the point right here. Now that we know the point, we can move toward what? Application. Applica- when you know the point of the text, you move toward application. Let me give you a word of advice here. Don't try to apply. I know I did a joke about pastors and you know babies crying and cell phones. As a rule, you don't want to apply anything unless you have interpreted the text. So interpret first, then apply. Okay, so application. How should I respond? Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to stop asking interpretive questions because those can be helpful here, okay? So one question I thought of is what are the parallels between sin and paralysis? Give that a thought. Are there any parallels between sin and being paralyzed? Are we paralyzed by sin? Can we be paralyzed by sin? We absolutely can. Does sin hinder us? Does, does it keep us in bondage before we know the Lord? Absolutely. Uh, are we free to do what God wants us to do when we are in, in chains of sin? We are not. Sin separates us from God, separates us from God's will. Somebody who is paralyzed, as we pointed out, is unable to to help themselves. When you are enslaved by sin as a lost person, can you help yourself? You cannot. You are dependent on someone outside of yourself. And so we're gonna begin to apply this because when we think about a a paralytic, a paralytic is totally dependent on other people. If they don't have assistance, if they're just left alone, nobody helps them, they can't feed themselves, they can't look after themselves, they can't take their own medicine perhaps, eventually what's gonna happen? They're going to die. They're going to die. And so we're applying this now. Now, as we apply this, you always have to be careful. I've just presented an idea here. You always have to be careful about presenting an idea or a concept into Scripture. However, if it fits, if it's true to the idea of the text, uh, it can be very helpful. Now, there's a picture that is summoned in my mind as I read this story, as I look at the elements of this story, okay? And I would never have have brought up a picture like this in the process of observation or the process of interpretation, but it's gonna be helpful in application. Just wanna be clear about that, okay? So interpret first, then you can use a picture like this to apply. As you read this, you see a man laying flat on a pallet on a bed. He's carried by four men. So you got one, two, three, four. You got four guys on the corners of this thing carrying this man, okay? Now, a paralyzed man is motionless as he lies there. At, at first glance, you might think he's dead, all right, in this particular situation. These men are carrying him. Have we been to an event? Have all of us been to an event where a, a deceased person is being carried by four men? People? Huh? What do we call that? That's a funeral, right? You're thinking of pallbearers carrying, uh, you know, uh, 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 the departed. And what happens at, after a funeral, at an interment? What happens? That body is lowered, that dead person is lowered into the ground. We've got a guy here, he's lowered through the roof into this room, just like uh, the deceased would be lowered into the ground. Now, in this story, this man who basically lives as, as functionally a dead person, his sins are forgiven, and shortly thereafter, he rises and he walks, okay? And so this is like a resurrection is what this is, all right? So it's a beautiful picture that is unfolding in this text right here. And I am seeing played out uh, uh, what, what Christ can do in the life of someone who is spiritually dead, who cannot help themselves, but his friends recognize that he can't help himself. And so what do they do? Because they have faith, they bring him to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one that can raise him. And so as I begin to apply this, I've got a question. Do I have faith to carry someone spiritually paralyzed to Christ? Do I have faith? You and I, we gotta be like these four guys. We gotta be people of faith. We've gotta be people who are caring for the lost. We've gotta be people who are creative. We gotta be willing to do whatever it takes. You know, well, man, you know, I, you know, I would love to come to that event. I'd love to come, but I live too far away. My car is not running. Maybe that means you go and you get them. Maybe you get creative about it. Maybe you think creatively about how to introduce the gospel to people, but you're creative. And you know what? What else are these guys? They're persistent. Do we need to be persistent when we share faith with other people? Do we give up if they say no? If they reject our message of the gospel, we don't quit. We keep at it because as long as they're upright and they're drawing breath, there's still a chance that they could trust Christ and end up in glory, amen? And so we don't give up. You know what? Aren't you glad people didn't give up on you? Aren't you glad that you had people that cared about you? Were there people that were instrumental in you coming to faith? Probably more than one, probably more than two, probably a whole slew of people praying for you. Uh, And so we need to be like this. And as you kind of make that kind of an application, you might even jot down some ideas, some specific ways that you might go about it. You might be thinking of somebody, uh, a name of someone. Another application question is this. What are some obstacles I face in bringing people to Jesus? It's always good to, to list your problems. I mean, if you don't know what the problems are, you know what the obstacles are, you're not going to come up with a solution. Is that true? And so you might write that down. And uh, I, would, I would maybe consider a question like this. What are some practical ways that I can show that I care sinner see these are these are just general ways to think about how you could apply this text and finally how can i work with others in bringing people to christ because collaboration is a beautiful thing in the body and so you know we're not in this alone We're, we're we're a part of a community of believers and so you know to do the work of the kingdom with other citizens of the kingdom is what god intends And ministry together, folks, that is something we are going to pursue in this church. You are not going to just be satisfied to come here, listen to Pastor Scott on Sunday and Wednesday, go about your week, come back, recognize that we give X, Y, and Z amount to this ministry or that ministry. If we're not engaged in ministry, we're not growing, we're not becoming disciples, and we're not letting what we read in the scripture come alive in our lives. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all I got for tonight. I hope that's practical. Did you find that practical? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, we'll keep going then. I won't give up then. I'll be persistent. Okay? Because you care. Amen. All right. Well, let me pray for you. Uh, our, our prayer team is going to be down here. If you'd like to come, come up and uh, have them pray for you, over you, uh, would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing Upon everybody in this room, I pray that our our time with you and in the word would be vibrant, would be productive, and it would uh, bring about change in our daily lives. And we ask your blessing on every single person. Would you remind them of who they are, of the power they have access to, and let them grow in the knowledge of your grace and closer to you each and every day. we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.